0: All right, take your Bibles now and turn with me to uh, the book of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke all record for us Jesus' famous sermon called the Mount Olivet Discourse, all of them. Mark's is the shortest. Mark was written for Romans who loved action. So there's a lot of action in Mark, but I think it must have been written for men, too, because men love things short and sweet, right? And so uh, Mark gives us an account of the uh, Mount Olivet Discourse, and uh, we're going to start with that, but uh, the focus is on the book of Daniel and uh, introducing the Antichrist, Chapter 13, verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple. This is the last week of Jesus' ministry. He's going to be crucified. And on Sunday, then he's going to be resurrected. But on Tuesday, he stays at, he stays at Bethany with um, uh, Mary and Martha, or at Lazarus' place, where Lazarus was raised. And... Um, comes every day over the hill, the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley and up into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, On Sunday, he had the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, and then he he goes and stays overnight with his friends just a a couple of miles away, and then he comes back every day and he goes into the temple. And on Tuesday, he had a huge day, everybody confronted him, everybody was... uh, trying to trip him up, and uh, he survived that experience very well and and with great wisdom. Then the Bible says on Tuesday that when he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher or Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. I would suggest that that's a disciple who's impressed. And somehow, in all of the teaching of Jesus, that week probably, he has been wondering about the future. And he just comes out and he says, Lord, look at this temple. This is fantastic. This is an incredible structure. Now, you need to know that there are seven wonders of the ancient world but there was one that was kind of precariously waiting to be adopted as the eighth wonder of the ancient world. And you probably now can guess what it was. It was Herod's temple in the city of Jerusalem. This was a magnificent structure. It had originally been built during right after the time of Daniel when Zerubbabel took the children of Israel back to the land of Israel And Zerubbabel had them build a temple, and after everybody looked at this temple, they kind of cried because it wasn't nearly like Solomon's temple in all its glory. And so years and years go by, and the Romans take over, and Herod is the king of Israel. And Herod is not a good king, but boy, he loved building projects. He built all kinds of things, and one of the things he wanted to do was he wanted to redo the temple. He wanted to make it bigger, and he wanted to make it better. He wanted to remodel it. And when he remodeled the temple that had been built by Zerubbabel, it became one of the most expressive structures in the world. The massive stones alone, some of them are 40 feet long and 12 feet high. In fact, you can go to Israel today And go to the welling wall, and you can see some of the original stones of the temple that are a part of the foundation. Everything else had been leveled, many uh, had been leveled when the Romans came and destroyed it. But miles away from the city of Jerusalem, when the sun would shine on that white marble, it was a fantastic sight. And people would go to their travel agents all over the Roman Empire. And they would get a brochure for Israel, and they would get a brochure for Jerusalem, and it would say, "You gotta go see the Temple of Jerusalem. It is fantastic." And not only was the white marble impressive, but it was ornament. The ornamentation of all of that was gold, and um, and so I can understand why the disciples said, "Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here." And Jesus' response wasn't, yeah, that's really cool. This is fantastic. Isn't isn't that a magnificent structure? That's incredible. That's amazing. Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? All a part of the temple complex. Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, if Jesus is around 33 years of age, and this is about 30 A.D., because we miscalculated when he was born by uh, about three or four years. So 1 B.C. is actually like 4 B.C. for the birth of Christ. But anyway, if Jesus is around 30 years of age, and the Roman government in Rome decided that they were going to destroy Destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and they did it in 70 AD, what Jesus said was going to happen occurred, what, 35 years later, or around that period of time. It's gone. And when the Roman Empire destroyed, and they didn't want to do it, when they got to Jerusalem and they saw how magnificent this was, they had a hard time figuring out what to do with this temple. But when they put the, put the siege ramps and, and everything up against it and, and burnt the temple, they took it apart stone by stone to get the melted gold that was a part of the structure. And so what Jesus said was fulfilled in the lifetime of many of the disciples. But having said that, In verse 3, the Bible now says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so he leaves with the disciples, they go down the Kidron Valley, go up onto the Mount of Olives, and you know there's famous pictures all over the world, travel agencies have them. If you want to go to Israel and you want to see Israel, one of the most famous pictures you're going to see, reporters stand there, they stand on the Mount of Olives, and they look over across the Kidron Valley, and there you see the Jerusalem uh, the skyline, you see the city, you see the eastern wall there, and then you see the Dome of the Rock with that, bron- that, with that, with that goldish-looking dome there called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, you all y'all can picture that, right? Well, that's the Mount of Olives, where that picture comes from. And so the Bible says that Jesus was sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Him privately, They really asked him three questions if you put together Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Tell us, when will these things be? When is this going to happen? And what will be the sign when all of these things will be fulfilled? And what will be the end of the age? If you add the other information that we have in Matthew and in Luke. And Jesus answered them, and he began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. In other words, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Now, think about that for a second. Now, When you study Scripture, one of the best things you can do is you can trace the people in any passage of Scripture. And I'm just going to uh, just ask you to think about that for a minute, because if you're going to trace the people, you'd be tracing Peter, James, John, Andrew, the disciples who were there on the Mount of Olives, and every time Jesus says, take heed that no one deceives you, you're going to think of the disciples. And when you trace, when when Jesus talks about, when he refers to all of the things that happen in Mark chapter 13, when you get down to verse 22, where Jesus talks about what it's going to be like before he actually returns to this earth, notice what he says in verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you... All things, what, beforehand. I say, oh, Pastor, why are you even sharing that? What's, what's, what's the use of doing that? Well, I want to share that with you, and I want you to think about that for a minute, because a lot of people look at this passage of Scripture and say, Wow, the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD, and it looks to me like Jesus is talking about stuff that's going to happen in the lifetime of the apostles. And if it is, then guess what? It's all been fulfilled. Right? It's all been fulfilled until we get to verse 24. But see there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that because in verses 3 through 8 the Bible talks about wars and rumors of wars and nations rising above nations and then concludes with the phrase in verse 8 these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but the whole point, and you may have a margin note in your Bible that says, these are the beginnings of birth pains. The implication is pretty clear. He's not talking about a short period of time till 70 AD. He's talking about a long stretch of time. A stretch of time that begins with false prophets and false Christs A stretch of time that begins with wars and rumors of wars. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He's dealing with a stretch of time that begins with earthquakes in various places, but will continue. And when he says in verse 8, these are the beginning of SARS, he's saying, look at all of these things, and I can tell you that it's all going to get worse. Here we are 2,000 years later. Earthquakes in various places. I used to get the Tribune Review until they stopped delivering it in Connellsville. And I used to open up to the weather section to see how many earthquakes there were on the earth that week. How many get the Tribune Review and look at that? There's usually about a half a dozen earthquakes anywhere on the earth at some point during any given week. Wars and rumors of wars, that's quite obvious. You don't even have to look at the paper to see how much of the world is in turmoil. But Jesus said, these are the beginning of sorrows. To the disciples, he said, these are the beginning of sorrows. And these aren't just events that happen during their lifetime, but this is stuff that begins in the lifetime of the disciples and includes you and me. So whenever Jesus is saying, for I take heed that no one deceives you, he's talking to you and me as well. But then when Jesus also says in verse 7, do not be troubled, he is also talking to you and me. (laughs) Oh, you know, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. And and so in verses 6, 7, and 8, the focus is certainly what's going to happen on the world scene. I want you to look at verses 9, 10, and 11 very quickly here. But watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony to them. Certainly the focus is on the disciples and the apostles. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Certainly now he's talking to us in this day and age, right? See how he puts together, there's a long stretch of time there. And one of the things that you and I need to keep in mind as far as prophecy is concerned, that it isn't so much that it happens right then and there, but it takes a long time for God to accomplish what is to be accomplished. Then I want you to jump down to verse 14. Because here's where we come in with our studies in Daniel. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now I got to tell you, you can easily take this passage of scripture and say the abomination of desolation, what on earth is that? Let's go back to Daniel for just a second, and let's see if we can nail it down for any of us who are not familiar with that. Daniel, and we're going to start at Daniel chapter 8. Four times in the book of Daniel, Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation. Four times. The first time he makes specific reference to it is in the 8th chapter of Daniel. And in the 8th chapter of Daniel, the Bible says after. Now, keep in mind, you and I are at a disadvantage this morning for two reasons. Number one, some of you probably never heard the sermon that we gave on Daniel 8. So you don't have a clue. And that's okay. I'm I'm trying to defend you. Second of all, it's been a week. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but my mind has a tendency to forget things. So I'm just putting myself in everybody's shoes because I think we're all in the same boat together. That if we don't have a real quick review, we're probably not going to remember what this was all about. But let me just simply say to you in Daniel chapter 8, when Daniel has been given history for us to remember that is going to happen, he talks about a ram and a goat. And the ram is there. It has uh, uh, two horns. That's Persia and the Medes. They're one empire. And the goat is Greece. And Greece flies across the wilderness. And Greece takes over the world. And he describes that to us. And then out of the male goat, look at verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong... The large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, just remind you that the Greek empire, Alexander the Great, took over the world, and then when he died, his generals took over his territory, four generals, specifically speaking. This was fulfilled back then. And then in verse 9, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great, toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land, and it grew up to the host of heaven. And most of us know, historically speaking, Antiochus Epiphanes, we dealt with him last week, we can't get into that as much as maybe some of you would wish we would review that. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the Greek rulers who was so mad at the Jewish people that he came into Israel desecrated the temple, sacrificed a pig, took the broth of that pig and scattered it all over the place, stopped the daily sacrifices, and the Jewish people called it the abomination of desolation. Look at verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Look at verse 12. Because of transgression and an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And then I heard. See, this is a vision that Daniel is, 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 um, is, is, is watching And I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one say to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? How long will it be? How long will it be? Now, i got to tell you that this is tough prophecy. It's tough prophecy because... We don't know what to do with it. We really don't know what to do with it. When we, get to verse, when we get to verse 9, where the Bible says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, the land of Israel. When we get there, we can easily say, well, that's Antiochus Epiphanes. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows. He's the guy that the Romans drew the circle around in the sand and said, hey, listen. We want your answer. You're taking over too much territory. Rome wants to know what you're going to do. And he says, Well, I'll decide. And later, and, and, and the general, Roman general said, No, you're going to decide today, right now. Right now. And he's okay, then I'll leave. And he was the one that was so angry that he went up and desecrated the Jewish temple. But when you read verse 11, when you read verse 10, notice what it says. He not only grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, but it says, and it grew up to the host of heaven. What's that all about? And it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, you and I know that it's not history where we, we get up into the heavens and we're able to grab some stars and we're able to bring them down to the ground. We know that's not what he's talking about. But the big question is, is he he taking Antiochus Epiphanes and is he sharing something else that's going to come later that's of much greater magnitude? See the point I'm trying to make? Now, I, I I don't want to get too deep into this, so I'm going to eliminate two other passages of Scripture, but I do want you to go to Daniel chapter 11. That's the second one that we'll deal with, Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. The others are are great in themselves and would help us out, but I think we can do okay with this one because you'll remember that in Daniel chapter 11, and we looked at this last week, we have a history of Persia and Greece and Rome to such great detail that there are 135 prophecies that someone counted that have been filled in this one chapter of the Bible alone. And you'll remember that when Antiochus Epiphanes When Antiochus Epiphanes came to take over Egypt, that you'll remember that in verse 30, ships from Cyprus, these are the Roman ships, came against him, and therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And look at verse 31. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. And then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there, what does it say? Everybody together? The abomination of desolation. The history continues in verse 32, and verse 33, and verse 34, and verse 35. And then when you get to verse 36, somehow we look at that and say, I don't know. Is he now talking about something that's going to happen in the future? Yes, Antiochus Epiphanes is the example. He's the symbol. But verse 36 seems like it's something more, something greater, something that is far more extensive than what Antiochus Epiphanes did back there in verse 31. For the Bible says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. And then when you get to verse 40, and I want you to notice here, I, I you know, if you don't have a Bible, you're not reading this. I understand this is difficult. Even if you're reading it, it's difficult. When you get down to verse 40, notice what he says: And the time of the end, and at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come up against him like a whirlwind. And he shall enter the glorious land and destroy many countries. And you look at that and you say, wow, is, is he talking about just Tychus Epiphanes or is Antiochus Epiphanes referring to something else? What's the answer? Referring to something else? Well, yes, we know that. We know that because when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, Antiochus Epiphanes was dead and gone by then. And yet he looks at the disciples and he says, when you see the abomination of desolations, when you see somebody standing in a place he shouldn't stand in the holy spot, when you see that happening... It's during that period of time, according to the book of Matthew and the book of Mark and the book of Luke, it's during that period of time that you're going to see tribulation like you've never seen it before. Look at Mark. Go back to Mark now, and I want you to look at this. Jesus said in verse 14, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 19. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. Now fortunately, the emphasis and the focus On that passage of scripture is on the country of Judea. And we could easily look at the destruction of the temple where thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews were killed in 70 AD. We could look at that. And Jesus may definitely have that example in his mind when he's talking about that. But when he gives this other information, when he gives this other information about the tribulation, that'll be nothing, there'll never be anything like it on the face of the earth, I look at that and I say, well, Jesus. Are we talking about a period of time that's greater? Are we talking about a period of time where not just don't we have long stretches of your prophecy being fulfilled over thousands of years, but do we have a, a, a gap here? Are you jumping over a couple of thousand years to the end time and giving us information based on the fact that at the end of the world there's going to be a great tribulation period of seven years For the Jewish people. Now, I I gotta say to you, this is a little haphazard, this is a little hodgepodge today, but the focus here is Judah or Judea and the Jewish people. Right? He doesn't say anything about the church necessarily in this passage of scripture. He really doesn't. You can't prove that he does. Jewish people were God's chosen people, His elect. Does God elect people us in the church day? Yes, He does. But the focus is on Jewish people there, and I'm bringing it out for a reason because we live in a horrible period of time. Um, Haley, one of the best, uh, one of the one of the earliest handbooks that we know of, when he was dealing with passages of Scripture like the one we just read in Daniel, he didn't know what to do with it. He really didn't know what to do with it. He's, he's a great Bible scholar. And in Daniel chapter 11, when he talks about the history of Greece and the history of Rome, and in Daniel chapter 11, he is able to give all of the historical kings and all of the historical people, he, in every verse, he, he lists every verse and he lists the people. He lists Alexander the Great, Ptolemy 1, Bernice, Ptolemy 3, and he goes down through all of the people, all of the people. But when he gets to the, the 35th verse where he talks about, we just read it in Daniel. When he gets to the 35th verse, he stops there, and here's what he says in verse, 30, for verse 36 to the end of the chapter. Is this Antiochus Epiphanes? He doesn't know what to do with it. He knows there's more information in there than just what happened historically. Or is it Muhammad, Or is it the Antichrist? He doesn't know. So he leaves it open-ended. Most Bible scholars today, a generation later, would say, well, Sounds to me like he's dealing with the Antichrist. He's dealing with this person that's going to come, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign. He's going to do it in lawlessness. He's going to do it in falsehood. He's going to, he's going to glorify lies and untruths, and he's going to be in control for seven years now that's that's the position that we see in the new testament from a little perspective the big question is where will you and i be when all of this happens and that's that's another story but i just i just want you to to know something here that it's not far fetched for us to read prophecy and and I want you to turn to Luke. And I'll tell you, we're going to have to close with this because of the time element here. But I want you to go to Luke chapter 4. I, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not even started. I'm sorry. I apologize. But I want you to go to Luke chapter 4 for just a second. And I want you to see what happens in Luke chapter 4 so that you can at least walk out of here today and you can know that there is Bible prophecy in the Old Testament where there are many gaps Many gaps. Here's my favorite one. I could give you a bunch, but here's my favorite one. Jesus walks into the synagogue at Nazareth. And the Bible says he was handed the prophet Isaiah, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, everybody in chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord. Let's read it together. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, how does it end? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, go back to Isaiah chapter 61 where the original passage of Scripture was delivered to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61. Go back to Isaiah chapter 61. I guess this is the only thing I can really show you today that's important for you to remember, and because this is critical. This is critical when we look at prophecy, and we're going we're gonna to need this down the road. Jesus opens to this passage of Scripture. He reads from this passage of Scripture, and I want you to notice where he ends. The Spirit of the Lord God, let's all read this together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of... Oh, does he go any further? No. He does not go any further. He stops at verse 2. But there's an end there, which means that these are so connected you should read them together. But he stops at verse 2. He hands the scroll back and he says, "This is today this is fulfilled. It's all about my first coming. Now the reason why I share this with you is because Verse 2, between between the first part of verse 2 and the second part of verse 2, is a huge gap of at least 2,000 years. At least. Right? Notice what he says at the end of verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion... And now he talks about his second coming. So here's a passage of Scripture that deals with his first coming. Here's a passage of Scripture that deals with his second coming. Jesus divides it by at least 2,000 years, you see, in the book of Isaiah. And when he goes into the synagogue there in Nazareth, he only goes so far to discuss the fulfillment of his first coming. Now, I share that with you because I don't know from here on out whether you're going to say you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an all-millennialist. I don't know. And I hate to throw those terms out without really dealing with them in great detail. But most of us know what we're talking about. It's not our first rodeo when it comes to eschatology. I don't know if you're a pre-tribulationist, a mid-tribulationist, or a post-tribulationist. Most of us know what we're talking about because this is not our first rodeo. But listen, the one thing you and I need to keep in mind when it comes to Bible prophecy is there are long stretches of time as Jesus proved in Mark and there are big gaps sometimes in a sentence or two in prophecy that God gives to us. Well, what am I supposed to do with this as far as application goes this morning? I'm not, I, can't, I can only say to you If you'll read Daniel, the last chapter, the last chapter in Daniel, if you read that, you'll realize that Daniel's pretty upset with what he's reading about. Because once again, you have another passage of Scripture where the abomination of desolation is referred to. And you know what God does because of time. I can't do this, but you can do this on your own. You can look at Daniel chapter 12 and you can say, what does God say to Daniel to help comfort his heart? He says, Daniel, don't worry about this stuff. Right? Daniel, don't worry about this stuff. Don't go home and lose any sleep over it. I got this in control. Let me worry about it. You're going to be okay. And he says, in life, in death, don't you worry about it. You're going to be okay. And all I can say to you today is when you, I don't know what you think about Haley even refers to nuclear, back when he wrote this, the nuclear bomb, uh, was the most terrifying thing uh, that we worried about. I know when I was a kid, we had bomb shelters when I was a kid. How many remember bomb shelters when you were a kid? You remember them? But God would say, don't worry about it. I got this. I got this. And my desire is to protect you, to protect my people. That's all I can say. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And and Lord, we pray that you'd help us to at least see a couple of these principles today uh, so that as we continue to look at prophecy down the road, uh, that we will be able to have it in proper perspective and not live in fear and not live in anxiety and worry and apprehension about what the future is going to be like. Jesus, we thank you and pray in your precious name. Amen. If you don't know the Lord, let's all stand together. Opportunity to respond to the Lord. Um, If you don't know him, you know you need to be saved. You know your sin's not going to get you to heaven. Your sin will get you a place in hell. But you know that God is willing to wipe all that away. He's willing to forgive you of all of your sin. Doesn't matter how bad you were. Doesn't matter how many sins you committed. There's never, uh, it's never bad enough, it's never too much. God is willing to forgive that if you'll sincerely come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the penalty I deserve.